obviously um, would love want to promote you and the things that you're doing and your practice. So we'll mm. definitely get to that probably in the latter half of the episode. Okay. In the beginning, just go through kind of your pathway into medicine mm-hmm. from Anguilla. I said that correctly, right? Thank you for saying it correctly. <laughs> well, how, else, how else do people say it? Oh my God. Anguilla, Anguilla, <laughs> just I'm telling you, all kinds of ways. Antigua. <laughs> yeah. Angola. Oh gosh, yeah, I can see that that uh, mistake. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Dr. Stephen Bradley, your host. I'm so excited to have a very special guest. All our guests are very special, but this one we actually go way back. Um, <laughs> introduced through a mutual friend, and we've been acquaintances. I was at your wedding, <laughs> and and we're we're privileged to hear from Dr. Kimberly Rogers today. Hi, Dr. Bradley. I love calling you Dr. Bradley. It's so fun. <laughs> yeah, because when we first met, I was just barely in medical school. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rogers is a native of Anguilla. She came to the States and completed college at University of Maryland. She did her medical school and residency training in Philadelphia. Since then, she has practiced in Virginia as well as Philadelphia and has recently started her own direct primary care practice in Delaware, which we will certainly talk about. It's Restore MD Medical and Wellness. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Rogers, thank you so much. Uh, I'll call you Kim. Please call me yeah, Steven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming on the show. As usual, you know, our goal is to share people's journeys because I think we all have incredible stories to tell. And especially if your story begins in the Caribbean. <laughs> Talk about kind of your life growing up and, and when you decided to become a physician. Thank you for having me on your esteemed of podcast. Course, of course. <laughs> award-winning podcast. So um <laughs> so um I was born and raised in Anguilla, and thank you for pronouncing it correctly. Mm-hmm. A small, tiny island of 15,000 people. Uh, I also represent Jamaica because my mom is Jamaican. But I, you know, growing up on a tiny island, I would say that, you know, life was was always pretty good and, and very idyllic kind of childhood growing up. I, you know, always did well in school. So everybody was, you know, you, you get pushed into, oh, you should be a doctor or you should be this or you should be that. And to be honest, I, I wasn't one of those people that always knew I wanted to be a physician. I had lots of different goals and ambitions. And, you know, I wanted to be um, a writer. I wanted to be a lawyer. But I think that medicine kind of ended up being the thing that I went into because it married kind of everything that I enjoyed. So of course, I I kind of I wanted a career that was like directly helping people. And I love sciences. I loved the human body, the complexities of that. Um, I just remember growing up, my parents would always laugh that I was like reading encyclopedias for fun. (laughs) Were you? Yeah, apparently. I don't know. Maybe I didn't have (laughs) enough books. I I remember reading encyclopedias for sure. And, you know, my, I remember my mom was taking like master's level classes and she had like a psychology book and I was like reading these like master's level books. And I, I just always found the human brain, the human body, just very fascinating. So I ended up settling into medicine and I, 
didn't know whether I wanted to be a traditional physician or like an alternative one, because the funny thing about that is, so my mom growing up, I had always heard her singing the praises of this one doctor that she loved. And I kind of realized later on that this was an alternative medicine practitioner. And she would she would talk about her experience having this kind of like mysterious chronic illness with just like pain and all kinds of nonspecific things. And traditional medicine kind of failed her. She went to all kinds of doctors. Nobody could figure out what was going on. And this doctor kind of healed her with lifestyle modifications, with like herbal medicine, you know, just all these different things that we would in traditional medicine consider to be woo medicine. But, you know, my mom was, was, was cured. So I always kind of had it in the back of my mind that, you know, root cause is so important to understanding what's going on with the human body and treating that and respecting the power of like food is medicine. And, you know, in our house, we had this book that was like, herbs, herbal medicine kind of stuff. So that was always in the back of my mind. But I did eventually just, you know, decide to be a traditional doctor, physician. And so that led me to um, going to the U.S. So I was in Anguilla, 15,000 people. Naturally, in college, I wanted to be in a huge school, totally different environment. So I ended up at University of Maryland and the population of the school was like almost three times the population of my country. Yeah, it's like, it's crazy, right? But it was great. It was a wonderful experience and wouldn't take it back for the world. I would definitely say that being in a large school has some downsides though, in terms of, especially for pre-med, you know, you kind of need some mentoring and, and, and I didn't really get too much of that, um, in a large school. So I would sometimes kind of wish I was in a smaller school that maybe I would have uh, more mentorship, but you know, uh, at the end of the day, I had to learn a lot of independence and I did the whole pre-med thing. My MCAT, I remember, you know, getting a pretty average score, which for most people wouldn't wouldn't be too bad. But as an international student, mm. you know, you get told like you ha- your application has to be better than everybody else's because, you know, there's only a X number of spots. And so I remember feeling like I wasn't going to get into med school. <laughs> um, you know, my MCAT score was average. My GPA wasn't a 4.0. And I just was, you know, really kind of a little bit discouraged. And I only applied to three med schools. Wow. So, you know, if for anybody that may not understand that, like most people, I think, apply to, I mean, at double digit schools yeah, as, many, as many as you can afford <laughs> as many as you could afford but I kind of was like I'm not wasting my parents money <laughs> applying to these schools I applied to three schools and I think I chose those schools randomly just based on who didn't require a secondary essay I swear to god um <laughs> But luckily for me, you know, God is good. And he told me that I was going to Jefferson. And I, that was like the one school that I got invited to interview for. The other schools didn't even get back to me. And I got in a week after my interview. So, 
And that, you know, here I am today. So, you know, you only need one opportunity to kind of achieve your goals. And so I wouldn't encourage anybody to just apply to free med school. (laughs) I would not encourage that. But, you know, it worked out for me. Yeah. So Jefferson, you know, great. It's called Sydney Kimmel Medical College now, but wonderful uh, med school. Got a lot of great, you know, knowledge there. I just remember med school being... Of course, med school is like the most difficult thing like anybody can kind of go through, right? Like you just feel like you're standing there with like a fire hose just (laughs) on you. But I just remember that was the first time in my life I felt intimidated because you're surrounded by people like everybody there is like literally the smartest person in their class. Everybody there is a valedictorian, you know, and I just remember not really having imposter syndrome per se, but just kind of feeling like, wow, you know, I knew I was going to make it, but I just didn't know (laughs) if I was going to make it. But, you know, I knew that I I could do it. It just was very intimidating. But, you know, I got through and I did my fellowship, uh, my residency in in Philly. So, so what um, what helped you get through? Because you, mm-hmm. you came from a very small community and you went to a huge school in Maryland. And now you're in another very weird environment yeah. where it's cutthroat. And so how did Kim kind of get through that very intense couple of years? So I think that I just kind of, at the end of the day, you know, I just the way that I was raised, I never had any limitations in my mind. Like you, you can do whatever you want. And I obviously credit my parents to that, just kind of always believing in me, knowing that I could do it. So I just, you know, just persevered. And I, I, I'll tell you right now, like the first test that I did, my anatomy test, I failed that test. Oh no. I failed that test because I was, nervous and I was trying to do something different, which is me and my roommate at the time decided, oh, we're going to study together because, you know, we're, we're new. We're so scared. <laughs> we're going to study together. So both of us failed the test and I never studied with anybody before. So mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was kind of doubting my own abilities. I was doubting kind of how I do things, but that was a good lesson for me to learn because I never failed another test again. And it, I stuck to what I did. I know that, you know, I know this is how I study. I I knew that, you know, this was my strategy. Let me just stick with what I know. And, you know, once you stick with what you know, then, then you, then you do fine. And of course you find your community too, you know? So, so you studied alone. I did. I, I was yeah. one, I was one of those kids that didn't go to lecture. You know, th- there were the kids that went to lecture and they socialized and they, they learned by like sitting in the lecture hall I learned very quickly that I'm not an auditory learner. Like everything goes right over my head and I'm just sleepy. Mm -hmm. So I would wake up, (laughs) (laughs) I would just wake up and do it on my own, you know? And I think that that actually kind of takes a lot more discipline because like you have to kind of do it on your own. But I realized like doing the lecture on my own, repeating as many times, pausing it, writing my notes, like that's what I needed. And I studied by myself. Sometimes I would go in the library and study like around other people, but I studied by myself and that was just how it operated. That, that is so funny. I laugh because I am the same way. And I think <laughs> society, everybody's like, oh, let's do these little study groups. And oh, I know yeah. like the problem-based learning groups, uh, but the same way, like I don't learn, I sleep. There's a ton of pictures of me sleeping at Howard. 
in lecture. I would go to small group. I would socialize and have a good time, but I would study and learn between like 10 PM and four in the morning. And that's where I could just sit down and learn. Exactly. And, and that's, I kind of straddled the line and just had a really rough time and I still made it, <laughs> but finding out what works for you is super important. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that you have to know that everybody learns differently and you just, again, stick to what you know and don't feel bad. You know, I had people trying to tease me because I didn't go to lectures or even, you know, sometimes there's a stigma of like, oh, like you don't, you don't go out and, and do the public things in the lectures. But to me, that was a waste of time. And I didn't have time to waste. Like I wasn't going to be like you being up from like 10 to four because <laughs> I, I, I do not operate like that. I would die. Um, I needed my sleep. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, everybody just finds kind of what works. And then, you know, I had my friends who, even though, yes, it sounds like I'm, I was like a loner. I'm a lone wolf. Yes. But I do have my friends. So of course you would work hard, you would play hard and everybody was in the same boat. So it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. That school was great. And of course, that's where I met yeah. my husband too. So that was nice. <laughs> of course. So at some point you were exposed to all these different uh, specialties in your back of your head. Were you still thinking about that kind of lifestyle practice and wellness? And how did that work with the traditional medicine? You know, it's funny. So in med school, I don't remember really thinking about that stuff. I mean, a lot of the, the lifestyle root cause things, it was it was more subconscious. Like I, I'm looking back at it now and kind of realizing that that's what led me down that path. But I wasn't like necessarily going into it right in the beginning saying like, this is what I want to learn. Because mm -hmm. you you get, you go to med school and, you know, you, you're teaching what they're, you're learning what they're teaching you. And you don't have time to be exploring other things. <laughs> and of course, in, yeah. in med school, you know, the one of the criticisms is that it, Western medicine is very like reactive, very treatment focused. We didn't really learn a ton about prevention. We didn't really learn a lot about nutrition. And at the time, you know, in the back of my mind, I would kind of be like, hmm, you know, I don't really feel well versed in this, but okay, like. I'll figure it out later. But then I would say it was, it was really in my, my train, like after residency in my practice was when I kind of really felt the deficit. Yeah. Hmm. I think, I think that's, that's so important because as you're going through your training, you're going to see one type of practice. Mm -hmm. You're going to see whatever the internal medicine practice is at an academic center or at a community hospital. But once you're, able to build your own practice. You can sit back and, and think, I like doing things this way, or I like that. And there's so much flexibility. Mm -hmm. If you make it through the residency, I think <laughs> residency is getting a lot of folks caught up and burnt mm -hmm. out, but you gotta, you gotta push through residency and then you can yeah. kind of no. make it That's your own. That's so true because when, if you just look at what we learn in, in, in med school and residency, you would think that everybody is like in academic medicine, you know, cause that's, that's what mm -hmm. you're exposed to all the time. And, I didn't even know about like direct primary care, which is what I'm in now, until well into when I, you know, was was practicing. But yeah, I, I always knew I wanted to, I decided I wanted to do internal medicine in my clerkship years because I was kind of going between primary care and actually OBGYN. But then I did that rotation 
in the beginning and I realized it was very surgically focused and I realized very quickly that I'm not a surgeon. <laughs> I don't want to be one. And I think internal medicine, you know, and primary care was just like the best fit because I am being holistically focused. Like I can't just concentrate on like one organ system or whatever. So that's kind of how I ended up. And then in, in residency, still, you know, you're doing 80% of your internal medicine residency in the hospital. So I yeah. didn't get a ton of outpatient experience um, in residency either. But, you know, I, I just try to, to gain all the, the skills that I could. And, and then you kind of like take that and and figure it out as you go along. <laughs> But I think I think that we should have more of that in residency. In residency, that's my biggest thing is we should, especially for outpatient medicine, people need to see what's out there because I think that's a big part of the primary care shortage is people do not see the possibilities. And and, and then there's also, mm. I think um, there's this drive to subspecialize. Yeah. And so, you know, if you don't see a lot of that, you don't you don't even know what you want or what you like if, if you're not exposed to it. Yeah, that that's so important. That drive to sub to super mm -hmm. subspecialize is also what I think. I should write this down in a book because I think that's also what's contributing to burnout. I met a mm -hmm. medical student who was applying to combined IM derm oh. programs, and their goal was to do like dermatopathology from like from jump. Wow. Like, Whoa. Okay. Let's we can, <laughs> we can break all that stuff up in the little chunks, and then maybe. You just want to do dermatology right. or maybe you want to do, yeah. you know? Yeah. No, I mean, the, the culture of medicine, I think, because you're just surrounded by like type A people and everybody, everybody mm -hmm. wants to kind of be the quote unquote best. And unfortunately, there is that stigma of like, oh, primary care is, is where people that like couldn't become go into cardiology go. Right. And, you know, I've had people tell me like, oh, you're so smart. Like, why don't you? do xyz and it's like wow you know <laughs> that's offensive but it's because i i want <laughs> to be a primary care doctor and as a matter of fact i would argue that you kind of have to be very smart to do primary care because you're seeing literally like a little bit of everything you know and and i would i would encourage yeah. the best and the brightest to go into primary care because that's kind of where i think that it's is definitely needed you know yeah, we we talked about kind of your pathway into medicine. You mentioned a phrase that I mm -hmm. want to elaborate on as we kind of go into the second half of your story and career, which is so incredible. But you mentioned uh, direct yes. primary care. Mm -hmm. Can you explain, mm -hmm. you know, what that is, and then we're going to talk about some of the things that you've specialized in further, and and of course yeah. your your practice. So direct primary care is is an alternative model of care that is outside of the insurance based system. So traditional medicine is fee for service, right? And you you everybody has insurance. Um, well, not everybody has insurance, but the traditional model is billing insurance, and so direct primary care is. You as a doctor taking care of a patient in the best way that you know how without insurance being in the equation. So you, a patient will pay a monthly membership and that membership fee tends to be a lot more affordable than, you know, traditional like concierge medicine. Um, traditional concierge mm -hmm. medicine bills insurance, but then they also charge you this retainer fee. But with direct primary care, 
Yeah. So that's uh, kind of like the difference. And, and there, there's some overlap, you know, there's some concierge practices that are actually direct primary care practices, but that's kind of how the way to think about it is you, you're just charging that monthly membership. And then in exchange for that membership, the patient has, you know, full access to you and, you know, unlimited visits. And for me, the reason why I ultimately went into it is the type of care that I provide, you know, with very kind of like holistic focus. There's no way that I can do that in like a seven to 10 minute visit, which studies show is the average amount of time that a patient gets to spend with their primary care doctor. Because in the fee-for-service model, right, the incentive is volume. It's numbers. You have to see Mm. certain number of patients for the numbers to kind of make sense to generate that revenue. And so the average primary care physician is seeing, you know, 20, 30 plus patients a day. And um, that's why primary care doctors are getting burnt out. And that's why patients are not getting great care because you can be the best, brightest doctor in the world. There's literally no way you're going to be able to provide high quality care to a patient in a 10 minute visit. There's no way. So, you know, once I kind of realized over time that that's the type of care I wanted to provide and that the system was not going to be set up to allow me to do that, that's how I kind of discovered direct primary care. Yeah. So how many years did you work in the standard model primary so care? So here's the interesting thing. When I first graduated from residency, I actually didn't work in a fee-for-service model. I worked in a value-based care model. <laughs> oh, boy. You see, yeah, you're, you're, you're throwing know. these. Uh, I'm just a simple country anesthesiologist. So, so, so. so it's <laughs> interesting to know because the I found out about fee-for-service through value-based care. So Fee-for-service is exactly what I just described. You know, volume, it is incentivizing, um, seeing a large number of patients, it's incentivizing doing lots of tests, sending to specialists, because a, a healthcare system is making money from every test, every appointment, every, you know, every referral. And so the system is set up to generate revenue. And so that's, that's kind of why the healthcare system is so expensive. And that's kind of why Mm -hmm. primary care doctors um, in many cases are just kind of almost seen as like glorified, like referral, you know, people, because it's, it's like primary care isn't generating the revenue. It's, it's all the other things. So you see the patient in 10 minutes and figure out which specialist they need to go to, you know? And, and so that's the feedback. Um, value-based care is still insurance-based, but the caveat, it's, it's different in the type of care. So like, I'll give you an example. The place where I worked, we took care of Medicare Advantage seniors only. So Medicare Advantage has these value-based care plans where what they do is they will pay upfront to the organization per patient per month. The amount that they give you is determined by the level of complexity of the patient. But they give you this pot of money and they say, do whatever you want with this. And if you are smart enough to take care of the patient and say and not use all this money, you get to keep it. If you use too much, if the patient is too expensive, that's your problem. You lost money. Right. And so that's yeah. So that's value based care. That's a increasingly that's a growing 
model because what what ends up happening is at the end of the day that can end up being cheaper than a fee-for-service model. There are lots of pros to a value-based care model. There's a lot of cons to that as well. Because, you know, when I first joined that model in that organization, I was very excited, like, oh, this is this is great. You know, the, the system here is set up to keep people healthy because the things that cost money for you as an organization are things that, cost the patient money. So if if somebody ends up in the hospital, that's the biggest cost, right? Expensive medications, um, specialists, expensive tests. So your incentive as a primary care doctor is to keep the patient healthy so that they don't get sick, they don't go to the hospital, but you're also incentivized to do as much as you can to take care of the patient. So there was not an incentive to send to a cardiologist for like every little thing or send to a dermatologist for every little thing. I got very comfortable taking care of very sick patients by myself because I was empowered to do so. So I thought that that was great. And in the beginning, you know, I thought it was great. And of course, they, that's how I learned about fee-for-service because they would always compare, well, value-based care is, is, is great and fee-for-service sucks. And that's why you don't want to do that. But then value-based care also has its limitations in that if you are trying to save money, there are a lot of restrictions that come along with that, right? So there's a lot of maybe the patient needs this test, but you're disincentivized to do it. Or maybe the patient wants a mammogram and they're like one year above the cutoff for the guidelines and you're denied this mammogram, which is what happened. Um, I had to hmm. fight to get a 77-year-old patient who was very healthy and who had a family history of you know, breast cancer, a mammogram, because the USPF guidelines didn't promote it. And I'm like, well, guidelines are just guidelines. You have to individualize it to the patient, right? There, there were other things yeah. that were happening. Like I had wanted to do a, a women's health clinic because some of the other physicians in the practice. It was kind of like where I was, it was multiple centers and each center had um, multiple physicians. So in my center, there were like four and I think three of them were male. So they didn't want to do PAPs or the patient didn't want them to do the PAPs. And then these patients were also pretty disadvantaged socioeconomically and couldn't afford to see specialists or didn't have transportation. And so I would offer to do a pap smears like once a, I don't remember if it was once a week or once a month for other people's patients. And I was stopped from doing that because it was messing up my metric. You know, it was messing wow. up my numbers because the way that they show how much money you're saving or, you know, for, for the organization, they have like millions of metrics that you're measured by. So it just becomes very chafing and just very restrictive. And so I would say like three to four years into that, I was like, this is not for me. Like if this is what value-based care is, I don't want it. If And they're saying fee-for-service is even worse. So I don't want that either. And so what else is there? <laughs> and, yeah. And so, yeah. And, and that's kind of when I started digging. Like I was like, I want my own practice someday. I don't want to work for these people. I don't want to work for insurance and, and I just want to do my own thing, but how am I going to do that? Because what I was also learning is that primary private practices all across the country are not surviving 
because insurance right. reimbursements are going down, the cost of running a practice are going up, and how how do you how do you make it make sense? And so I don't remember the first day that I found out about direct primary care, but I know that that's kind of how I found out about it. I was just trying to figure out like what else is there. And it just made so much sense to me. And I was like, I joined this group, this Facebook group in 2019 or 2018, like years ago, uh, direct primary care doctors. Yeah. And in like five years later, I'm doing it myself, but it took a long time to, to actually get there. Yeah. So, so when did you uh, open Restore MD uh, Medical and Wellness? This month. <laughs> <laughs> I just opened it officially this month, but I was, so what, after this, um, that practice, I was working the value-based care model. I did that for six years. And then for another year and a half, I was in a traditional fee-for-service practice. While mm-hmm. I was in there, you know, I kind of saw the whole, the issues with the fee-for-service practice in you know, at the end of the day, even the best practice in the world, as long as you're working in the insurance-based system, they're going to be red tape bureaucracies and headaches and, and stuff that you just can't avoid, even though you might be a wonderful practice, you know? So the, the place that I was working at most recently, I would say of, of any practice out there, that was the one that was the best fit for me because it's like a lifestyle medicine um, based practice. But at the end of the day, like you're still, you know, I, I still wasn't able to see patients for an hour if I wanted. I still had to kind of, you know, see a certain number of patients a day. I still, you, you still have to follow the rules. (laughs) You still have to follow the restrictions. And then even in that practice, there was a subset of patients that were value-based care. And so there were totally different rules and it was, it just got complicated. And, and that kind of solidified my, my, my thought that I really wanted to do a DPC, direct primary care. And, and then I just, you know, basically decided to take the leap and um, I put in my notice and my last day working for somebody else was uh, the last day of November, twenty twenty two. I'll have to put in some uh, applause <laughs> sound effects. So, gosh, I, I you just started the practice, yeah. so we have to uh, we need a commercial. <laughs> so, Doctor Rogers, please tell us about Restore MD <laughs> Medical and Wellness. So, Restore Medical. Restore MD Medical and Wellness is an integrated direct primary care, lifestyle medicine, and weight loss practice. So as a internist who is also board certified in lifestyle medicine and obesity medicine, I offer my patients, you know, a very kind of integrative approach and um, having direct primary care means that Patients can spend more time with me. They have access to me via text, via calling. You know, it's just it's just a different level of service. It's concierge-like without the concierge pricing. But what I love about it the most is the availability for me to say, okay, this visit can be an hour long because nobody's telling me that I can only see mm. a patient for 10 minutes, right? If I if I need to see a patient once a week, it's does it? It's fine. I have room on my schedule to see that person because I'm not booked out four months. 
you know, which most fee-for-service practices are going to be booked out because it's all about volume. It's all about number of patients that you're seeing. So I'm able to kind of provide that personalized care, get to know people. I have more time to get to the root cause because I can spend more time with the patient. And so literally it's not, it's not magic. If you have more time to spend with people, you just do a better job of taking care of them. And that's, that's really what it's about. And so, yeah, I'm excited to, you know, get started. My, my first in-person appointment is actually next week. I've, (laughs) I've done virtual appointments already, but, um, I'm excited to, you know, open the doors literally and kind of, um, start seeing people in person. (laughs) So where are you? Because mm-hmm. you're in Delaware, but specifically, where we have a fan base across the world. <laughs> yes, the yes. Black Daughters podcast is listened to in over 35 different countries. We have a huge fan base in Kazakhstan. Love it somehow, um, <laughs> but I guess they're allies. But for our stateside listeners, you're in Delaware, but mm-hmm. um, how? You know what? What area specifically? So I'm in North Delaware. I'm in Wilmington, in North Wilmington. So Delaware geographically is like right below Pennsylvania and I'm my practice is okay. is like 10 minutes from the border between Delaware and Pennsylvania so uh, I'm actually you know um I actually see patients in both states so I have licenses in Delaware and Pennsylvania and so you know I I'm seeing people from Delaware I'm also seeing people who live like even in Philly because it's not that far so my website is called restoremdmed.com. That's restoremdmed.com. And on the website, you can actually schedule like a virtual meet and greet. So I'm like talking to people, explaining, you know, the model and just ch- chit-chatting before people decide if they want to sign up or not. You know, my telephone number is also on the website and people People have been just cold calling me, which is great too. I'm happy to, oh, yeah, wow. even just today, like an hour ago, I just got a call and I was just chit-chatting for about 10, 15 minutes with somebody. And people are always surprised when they call and they get, you know, the doctor directly. And I'm like, that's... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's hard. That's, I'm like, that's what that it's about happen. here. You know, that's kind of the whole the whole business model is, is direct access. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Black Doctors Podcast. If you like what you heard, Go ahead and leave a rating or a review as it helps the show to grow. Please share with anybody you think may find it helpful as well. I want to give a special shout out to at Physician Doodles, Dr. Rahel Gazal for our album artwork for this season, season seven of the Black Doctors podcast. So excited for next week where we'll continue this episode with Dr. Kim of Restore MD and hear about some of the subspecialty practices that she offers in lifestyle and obesity medicine. Thanks for tuning into the Black Doctors Podcast. We are here because representation matters.